Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. Father, your word uh, tells us, or asks the question, how can we keep our way pure? Um, How can we stay on the good way? Um, The answer is by, by guarding it according to your word. So, Father... May you cause us to store store up your word this morning in our hearts, and may our souls delight in your statutes, and may we not forget your word. So Spirit, come. Uh, We need your help. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So very early in the Bible, we find that God made humans, amongst other things, uh, to respond through and to music. Uh, remember, uh, Adam, you know, when Adam first saw Eve, it was, he, he burst into one of the first, I guess the first, love song. You know, there's something about music that resonates deeply within us, right? All cultures across the world have different, you know, their different styles, different flavors of music. I, I remember at a young age, the first time I saw my dad strum a couple of uh, chords on the guitar, and I'm like, this kid's like, I didn't know my dad could play guitar. I mean, he's like, what is this deep magic that I'm hearing? Uh, well, just as God made all humans in some way, and look, if you don't like music, you just haven't found the music that you like, right? We, we all respond to music, but just like all humans respond, in his word we find that that's even more so the case with his particular people. That God's people, that he's saved, are a, a singing people And this morning we come to one of the most well-known songs that God's people have sung for millennia in what we uh, see Mary's song. Graham Scroge, scholar, old pastor, uh, he called Mary's song not only the last of the Hebrew Psalms, uh, but also the first of the the Christian hymns, which means that this is not only the first, but possibly the greatest Christmas carol of, of all time, ever. Um, well, surprise, surprise, as we talked about last week, you know, skeptics don't like this one bit. Because just like last week with the virgin birth, it's, sometimes it's hard to believe stuff like that. And, and so what skeptics uh, say is, you know, maybe a lot of people hold this today. There's a whole host that say it's impossible that a teenager, because we all know teenagers, right? It's impossible that a, that teenager Mary could compose such a poetic and theological masterpiece. And, and they say that this is, is way too structured, it's way too polished and finished for this just to be extemporaneous. And so they argued that whoever came up with this, likely Luke, sat and thought and wrote this out over a long period of time. That's what the skeptics say. And to a degree, you know, it's easy to see their point, right? Uh, Because we live in a world, if you've read Malcolm Gladwell of the 10,000-hour rule, right? We live in a world that says, for you to truly master something, you've got to put in the time. You know, we we hear of people like Leonard Cohen, who, uh, if you've listened to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, uh, Revisionist History, he talks about Leonard Cohen's song, Hallelujah, right? Um, apparently it took Leonard Cohen five years to write that song. And some would argue he was writing it to, to the day he died. 
Um, Leonard Cohen wrote 80 verses, some maybe more, to that song before settling on what he considered the six best before he recorded it in 1984. You know, so we hear things like that, and we're like, man, good stuff takes a long time, you know. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't mean that all songs take a long time. Uh, Taylor Swift, for instance, Taylor Swift wrote her breathtaking, We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together. Uh, <laughs> 24 minutes, took her 24 minutes to write that song. The Beastie Boys claimed that they came up with You Gotta Fight for Your Right to Party, five minutes. And you know, uh, there's a part of me that I can believe that. I believe it took them about five minutes to write that song. Um, and you know, a lot of people would argue that, okay, those songs may be good, but they're not great songs. Um, all right, we'll enter the Beatles. Paul McCartney claims that he wrote the song yesterday uh, in less than a minute. He says he had a dream, woke up, wrote down the words. Less than a minute. So, so yes, I mean, great art and great songs even can be produced almost instantaneous. But, but then second to the, the skeptic who, who wonders how could Mary know all this stuff, you know, the song, Mary, Did You Know? Um, it, it's easy to forget that every young Israelite, just like a lot of our kids at our church, you know, even you know, 10 years old and younger, they can tell you basically all the children's catechisms. Um, it, it's, it's easy to forget that every young Israelite knew the heart, or knew by heart, the songs of Hannah, the songs of Deborah, the songs of David. I mean, that was their pop music. They sang it all the time. And so it would only be natural for a newly pregnant Mary to be thinking about things that Hannah said after she you know, found out she was pregnant, as she was walking to Elizabeth's house. And so a lot of what Mary's saying and what we're about to read is really drawing from Scripture that Mary already knew. And then add to that, you know, the Spirit in her applying all of these promises to her you making them real and making them very just visceral so that what comes out is an explosion of joy from her heart. And then finally add to that just our understanding of divine inspiration that Mary sang as she was carried along by the Holy Spirit. So putting all that together, uh, hopefully, it, it, you know, we see that that dismantles the skeptics and tells us Okay, look, I know it sounds crazy that a teenager would write this, but it is actually very reasonable that Mary sang it on the spot. In fact, that's, that's what happened. And I know it's become a meme now, that song asking, Mary, did you know? Um, but we know that by the Spirit, Mary, Mary knew. Mary knew. So with that said, let's listen to God's Word uh, as we read the first ever Christmas carol uh, in Mary's song. This is God's Word. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. 
as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months, and then she returned to her home. This is God's word. So I saw where this one pastor preached a 19-point sermon, (laughs) a 19-point sermon on this passage. And as tempting as that is for this morning, um, I thought, it's Christmas. You know, let's just have, again, just a two-point sermon. Um, So, Merry Christmas as my gift to you. Uh, We'll just do two two points uh, this morning. In Mary's song, we find two just big, big, big picture things. That that one, God, God humbles the proud. Just God is a God who humbles the proud. And then second, God is a God who lifts the humble. So first, God humbles the proud. You know, sometimes uh, Christian music, and especially Christmas Christian music, can be so sanitized, you know, and cheerful and bubble-wrapped <laughs> that you, you listen to it, and there's like zero connection to real life, right? It's missing the raw and the wild component that we all know to be true in our lives, that, that we need. We need Jesus. Well, to that, Diedrich Bonhoeffer said that this song of Mary is the most passionate most wild, most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. He says, this is not the tender, gentle, dreamy Mary. This is Mary, the ardent worshiper. I mean, she's just going, going at the Lord. And notice Mary, she skips a lot of the sentimentality found in much of our contemporary Christian music. Really, I think even we noticed this before, even the classic Christmas hymn we just sang this morning, you see the words, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Okay, we sing that because I guess it's just like a traditional Christmas hymn, but like, not only is that not, not even remotely biblical, but like, who cares about the daggum cows? You know, we're singing about cows. Like, like we're here to sing about Jesus, right? Jesus is the King of Kings. So Mary... She skips all of that, like the cows and the sheep and the like, how, how gentle and, you know, how, how like pleasant the night was. And she can't get over the fact that God is strong enough to intervene for the defenseless, even her, even us. Mary says God is mighty. She sees God as this warrior king who will bring justice to the earth and, and that his same grace that lifts the humble also crushes the proud, which is a little different from our Christmas songs. You know, Mary's song shows us that worship starts with God. That she, I mean, she has very little to say about herself or what she has done. It is all about God. And notice what she does say about herself is she begins with this simple definition of worship, of what's going on inside of her heart as she sings. She, she sings that, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You know, when, when you look at a, a butterfly under a magnifying glass, um, a lot of things happen. You know, well, one, all of a sudden, you, you, you see the butterfly larger. You know, you can, see it, you can see it better. But two, all these small things that you never noticed about that butterfly, all these small things just pop. You know, you, you see them in a, in a new way. You see these small things that are, they're, you, you, like, this butterfly is so much more beautiful than you, you thought before. Well, in the same way, Mary is saying, my soul enlarges the Lord. 
My, my soul makes great the Lord. Of course, God can't be made greater. God can't be made bigger. I mean, God's God. But what she's saying is that God can be enlarged in our, our life. God can be enlarged in our soul that we can see a new aspect of his greatness or we can experience the same amazing grace that we've sang about a million times, but there's a difference between singing about amazing grace when like, hey, it's my birthday and everybody just gave me all this great stuff and amazing grace and like, my pet died, my mom died, I'm about to die. You know, it's, it, we, we see, we experience God's grace in a new way and we say, I had no idea. He is bigger, he is better, he is more beautiful than I ever thought before. And so that's a good prayer for our worship, right? That the Lord would be magnified in our souls as we sit under his word. And, and then Mary then said that, that my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She couples together soul and spirit so as to say my total self, like everything that I have praises you, God, the mighty God. Remember, remember what Jesus said when he began his ministry in John 4. Uh, he said that the hour is coming, and oh, by the way, the hour's now, he said, that when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And a lot of times we skip over the fact that that's lowercase s, spirit and the lowercase s, spirit and truth, which means that the Holy Spirit is here at our worship. We do worship in the Holy Spirit. That's not what Jesus was talking about. Jesus meant our entire self. Mind, body, soul, spirit, like our, our all, all in. Which means God doesn't want us to check our, our minds at the door when we walk into the church, like some churches, and it's like, it's all about an emotional experience. And we just drum it up, and it is an emotional experience. And at the same time, God doesn't want us to check our emotions at the door either and come to church and make this only an intellectual exercise you know, of, of information transfer. Um, no, no, what God wants us to bring is everything that we are to magnify and to rejoice in Him. So, so why, why was Mary worshiping? Why, why do we worship in spirit and in truth? Why can we bring everything? Well, Mary pulls back the curtain to remind us that God's not just confined to the church. You know, he's not just involved in churchy things. <laughs> that God is the creator of everything. That He is at work bringing about justice in this world, and if not in this life, then he will in the one to come. And so Mary does this by latching on to some things that God did in the past to highlight what God's going to do in the future because God doesn't change. You know, as we see what he's done in the past, he'll do the same thing. And so she look at verse 51. She says, He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. You know, twice in the New Testament, we find that God opposes the proud. <laughs> like, like, he is like actively against you, uh, you know, if you are, are proud. But we also see that he gives grace to the humble. And Mary's saying, you know, that's not just a religious teaching that exists in this kind of ephemeral spiritual realm where we just kind of, okay, let's just try to be humble uh, no, she's saying, look, you can look back in history and you can see, like, this is just real. Um, it's hard not to think of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, right, when you think of this. 
You remember King Nebuchadnezzar, he was standing on his roof of his palace in Babylon. He's looking out over all his, he's created. And he says, is this not great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power and by the glory of my majesty? Right? Reminds me of my brother, um, Brad and I, when we were younger, we, we built this fort in our, back in our woods. Man, we spent days like cutting down all the trees and making this huge, awesome fort. My cousins from Birmingham, they don't understand. They, they came and visited one time, and within like two minutes, they had destroyed our fort. And so me and Brad were like, this great thing that we have built is like in ruin now. Um, that's what happened with, with Nebuchadnezzar, because remember what happened right after he said this? Next thing we know, Nebuchadnezzar is being struck by this, or God struck Nebuchadnezzar with this very rare mental disease. And it's the thing that happens sometimes when people like, think they are an animal. Nebuchadnezzar, for seven years, thought he was an animal until he came to his senses. He turned his eyes to God, and he gave praises to God. You know, in, in Jesus' day, it was the Pharisees, right, who were humbled over and over again, or needed humbling. Uh, these were the men who prayed so that everyone could hear them, who tithed uh, even their garden herbs. It was them who Jesus called to humility. And, and look, how many times have we seen this happen just in our lifetime? Y'all remember seeing, watching the news and watching the big statue of Saddam Hussein just being toppled by our, our troops? Um, or Enron, you know, the smartest guys in the room, the smartest people, smartest guys in the room coming to ruin. And so what we find throughout the truth of Scripture, if you think that you can build, you can grow, you can succeed, if you think that you can stand on your own, you, you're not standing on much. The Bible says if you think you're hot stuff, you ain't nothing. You know, one day, every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, not, not you, not you. So then Mary says, God also brings about social reversal. Uh, verse 52, he says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted those in humble estate. You know, in Daniel, we read of this really weird thing that happened. Belshazzar was having this wild and debauched feast, right, in, in Babylon. This wild, wild party, and that very night, remember the writing on the wall, that, that's what happened. I mean, that very night, Babylon fell. And so the, the new king, uh, King Darius, they, they came in, they killed Belshazzar, but then they made Daniel, lowly Daniel, exiled Daniel, made him the chief administrator of the kingdom. And when we see this reversal all the time where God takes the lowly and exalts them, he takes the proud, he crushes them. Uh, this happens all the time. Peter said, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Social reversal. And then finally, under this point, we see that God humbles the proud with a blessing, blessing reversal. You know, uh, in life, often what our world calls a blessing, man, you are so blessed. What our world calls a blessing oftentimes ends up being more a curse. And so there's a huge difference between the blessings of the world and the blessings of God on your life. So verse 53, we find the differences here. He says, He has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich He has sent away empty. 
You know, this is Abraham being called from Ur of the Chaldees. Man, this dude's down here worshiping the moon. Like, he don't know what he's doing, but God, Yahweh, calls him and comes into his life. This is David, the smallest, the, the weakest link, becoming the king. This is Jesus born in Bethlehem. But this is also the rich young ruler, right? Who thought he had what he needed, and yet he refused to let go. And he walked away sad and restless. Well, contrast that with what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's where the blessing is. Mary is worshiping because God is the one who has the power to humble the proud. This isn't just like, we're not just like playing church, but God has the power to do this. And, and can we say, just praise God, because... All of us, apart from Christ, like we are these prideful people who think it's all about us. But praise God that God does humble the proud because Him humbling us means that He can heal us. He can lift us. Which brings us to our second point. God lifts the humble. You know, Mary gets personal. We've talked about the last two weeks. It's well documented just what type of situation she was in. Young girl, uneducated, now a teen mom, uh, her standing in society, just not, not a good, good place. Well, verse 48, she says, For God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Um, John Calvin began his institutes by saying that all, really, really all wisdom in life comes down to two things. He said it's knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves and, and how those things relate. It's knowing that God is big and God is holy and we are, <laughs> we're not. And we can medicate ourselves and even kind of numb ourselves to the reality of our need, all we want. But that doesn't change the fact that we are all one phone call, one phone call from our knees. Uh, we are so lowly. I was, I was, telling, uh, I was telling Lee uh, that I spent 10 hours this week on uh, the phone with Apple support uh, because my uh, computer's been telling me to do an update for like the past two years, and every day I'm like, kicking the can, kick the can, remind me no more, remind me no more. Well, I had a lunch meeting. I was like, I'll just let it update while I go to my lunch meeting, and uh, when I get back, it'll be all ready to roll. Uh, so I left it updating, got back from the meeting, <laughs> and nothing worked. Computer just stopped working. And in that, that, like that split second right there, I, I felt so, I really felt really vulnerable, really helpless because, um, you know, I have to have a sermon ready like Sunday, you know, and, and time's ticking. And, and to make things worse, like every note that I've ever taken from any commentary I've ever read and any book I've ever read is on that computer. And every note I've ever taken from any sermon I've ever listened to is on that computer. And every illustration that sometimes I see things, I'm like, oh, that'd be fun to use in a sermon. So I, I write that down and I put it in the computer. Like all of that was on that computer that I couldn't, that didn't work. Um, what was I going to do? Uh, well, coincidentally, by God's grace, God, I guess God gave me the illustration uh, by not having illustrations. Um, that just as helpless and of humble estate as I felt in that moment, I'm like, I got nothing. Um, that is how my soul is always before the Lord. It's how our soul is always before the Lord. You know, not only are we sinners in need of salvation, but like that just, that's just scratching the surface, even though that's a huge need. 
Because once we're saved, we continue to be creatures desperately in need of our Creator, sustaining us every second. And so Augustine, considered by many to be the greatest theologian of the church, he understood this when he wrote, I love this quote from him. He said, for those who would learn God's ways, if you're going to learn God's ways, he said, humility is the first thing. Humility is the second thing. And humility is the third thing. Humility. J.C. Ryle said, it is a true saying of an old divine that a man has just so much Christianity as he has humility. It is the grace which of all is most becoming to human nature. I love that. Uh, to be human is to be humble. Above all, he said, it is the grace which is within the reach of every converted person. So it gives us hope, doesn't it? So Mary acknowledges her humble estate. But, but here's the remarkable thing, and this is what I think our, our world doesn't quite understand because people are like, oh, y'all are so just oh, masochistic as, as Christians. Like Christian humility doesn't lead to a low self-esteem. Christian humility doesn't lead her to self-loathing or to self-doubt. Now we find that that really isn't humility. That's just another form of self-absorption. Like, notice what happens when the gospel hits a, a truly humble heart. Mary can't get over the fact that the great mighty God notices her. She says, God has looked on me. In other words, she's saying, my God knows everything. My God knows that I'm young. And my God knows that I'm poor. He knows that I don't have a lot of resources at my disposal. My God knows that, that my reputation is going to be destroyed. My God knows my need, which means that my God knows how to meet my need. And I can trust him. He's looked on me, he's seen me, and I can trust him. And Westminster, the same is true for you if you are in Christ. You know, one of the key theological realities that, that we talk about a lot, but one of the key theological realities is that in Christ, we live before the face of God. And we live before a smiling face of God if you're in Christ. That God looks upon you and he knows. Like, like he knows what you're going through. And he knows your shame. He knows your pain. He knows the joys that you have. He knows. And so he knows by his grace how to meet those needs. And you know, and one thing, it's sobering to know that we live life before the face of God. It's super sobering and it calls us to repentance. But it's also, at the same time, a, a reason to rejoice, right? Because she says this, look at, verse, at the end of verse 48. Mary says that living before God's face is a blessing. She says, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. You know, the, the fact that Mary could say that, given her situation, is stunning. Because I, I'll tell you right now, in her world, she was the furthest thing from blessed. Like, nobody was calling her blessed right then. Like, they may have called her a tramp. Uh, they may talk about her behind her back, but they, they weren't calling her blessed. But here Mary is saying that what God calls you trumps what Greenwood calls you. Okay? What God calls you trumps what Greenwood calls you, what the world calls you. You know, Mary knew that the only reason she was blessed wasn't because she'd been extra good this year. The only reason she was blessed, it, I mean, it had nothing to do with her, but everything to do with what God had done in her life. Which brings us then to verse 49, and, and this is how we'll close. She says, For he who is mighty 
has done great things for me. And holy is his name. I know some of y'all are reading Diedrich Bonhoeffer's uh, biography by Eric Metaxas. Uh, Bonhoeffer, you know, he was, think about it, this dude was a pastor that tried to kill Adolf Hitler. How about that? Um, I kind of want to be, uh, I, that'd be cool. Just say that right. Um, it's like machine gun preacher, you know. Uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he was in prison for trying to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And before he was executed, he had to spend a Christmas in prison. He was there for 18 months, and he mentioned how powerful it was to celebrate Christmas in prison. Because he said he knew the only hope of him getting out of that prison was in someone from the outside coming into the prison and breaking him out and rescuing him. And he concluded that that's exactly, that's what Christmas is. That's exactly what Mary experienced, and that's exactly our experience in Christmas. Christmas is God coming from the outside and breaking into our prison to break us out, to rescue us from our prison of sin, and as we see, doing a mighty thing like bringing sinners like us back home to the Father. And if we were honest, I think at least for believers, at the end of the day, often the hardest thing for us to believe about Christmas, it isn't the virgin birth, and it's not the angels, and it's not, oh, that Mary could sing this on the spot. Like, it's not stuff like that, because we know God can do supernatural things. Yeah, He's God. But the hardest thing for us, at least for me to believe, is that God would do it for, for us. That y'all like, it is unto you, and, and you know what you did this week. Like, you know God, God does too. It, it, it's unto fickle faith you, hopeless you. It's unto checked out, hard-hearted, anxiety-ridden, shame-filled you. It's unto you, it's unto me, it's unto us a child is born. Unto you a Savior is given. And that means you don't have to be afraid anymore. You know, Christmas is a time where some of our kids, you know, they worry about whether they've been naughty or nice. Oh, man, got to be nice. Uh, because hopefully, if, you know, if you're good enough, Santa will reward you with some really cool things, right? But aren't you glad, I know I'm glad, that, that Jesus doesn't function like Santa. Good night. Um, because if, if Christianity was really, you know, us about, you know, about us being really, really good, and really, really nice, so that God will reward us, then there would be no response of joy, would it? You know, there probably wouldn't be anybody in this church right now. Um, that's what happened in Europe for the most part. People stopped preaching the gospel and started preaching moralism, and like, hey, this is how you do life, and this is how you be better people. And like, there's nobody in churches in Europe anymore, because the gospel's left. Um, you know, if that was the case, there would be no Mary song, if that was the gospel. But if the Jesus way, what if it was something done for you, and it's done to you, and it's done in you? Well, then that's another story, isn't it? All of a sudden, you start seeing what has John the Baptist leaping in the womb, and what has Elizabeth exclaiming, and what has Mary singing. What's Mr. In Jesus? He who is mighty has done great things for you. 
That is the message of Christmas. So Merry Christmas. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you just for the unbridled, explicit, 100 proof gospel. Um, And so, Lord, may you continue to capture us with it. Uh, Lord, thank you for Christmas uh, that the maker of all came down, became a baby, uh, was born uh, weak and lowly uh, so that you could take us weak and lowly people and that you could lift us up uh, to be sons and daughters of the King. Uh, Lord, this week as we prepare for Christmas and maybe have Christmas parties and last-minute Christmas shopping and all the things we got to do, Lord, may we do so uh, in a spirit uh, of joy and in the reality that we live our life before your face. So give us joy this Christmas, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.